Hey brother Hear me now Brother dog Know me Understand Welcome to the Sargassum Podcast. I'm Robbie Thigpen. I'm Francesca Elmer. And I am Mar Fernandez. And we are your hosts for today. And we are going to share with you the latest ideas and concepts about Sargassum and Sargassum Beaching events which have become an international challenge. Welcome everybody to the Sargassum Podcast. Today I'm not with Robbie and Mark, but I'm with Jenna, which is one of our three summer interns, and she's also one of our patrons. And she put together the episode today, and it's going to be really, really exciting. Um, but first, Jenna, tell us a bit about you. Hi, everyone. My name is Jenna. I live in Santa Cruz, California, and I am a student right now applying to graduate school for fall 2022 matriculation where I will be studying sea turtle movement ecology. Today, we're gonna talk about the Sargassum horneri in California. So I know we usually talk about Sargassum in other parts of the world, but today we are visiting California. We have with us Dr. Emily Reisnar. Emily recently received her PhD in biology from UCLA and is currently serving as a California Sea Grant State Fellow. Welcome, Emily. We also have Sarah Mastroni. Sarah is a graduate student in UCSC's Coastal Science and Policy Program, where she is working to incorporate algae in cow's diets to decrease their methane emissions. Welcome, Sarah. We also have Dr. Lindsay Orsini. Lindsay is a marine scientist who studied Sargassum horneri for her PhD research. She now works for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, managing invertebrate fisheries. Welcome, Dr. Orsini. We also have soon-to-be Dr. Lauren Smith. Lauren is a PhD candidate at UCLA in Dr. Peggy Fawn's lab. She's researching invasive sargassum horneri in Southern California. Welcome, Lauren. We also have Melissa Hansen. Melissa is a co-founder of Kelpful, a wild harvested seaweed company based in the central coast of California. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you all for being here today. Wow, that's a huge panel, Jenna. And I'm excited that we have everybody here. And I can't believe you got so many people together. So I can't wait to talk to everybody and get to know their stories. So in our podcast, we always have one question that we ask everybody. And that question is, what does sargassum mean to you? So maybe we start with Emily. What does sargassum mean to you? I guess um, I'm, I'm a little more familiar with the problematic sargassum. So I would say that it's, it means kind of problems to me. Uh, and when I think of sargassum, I think of like noxious golden tides, the species invasions that um, most of us are familiar with in California and also in Mexico. Uh, and then also even in the South Pacific, there's native species of sargassum that are expanding in their like expanding outside of their natural range. So it seems it seems kind of problematic to me, but there's also really good species of sargassum. What about you, Sarah? Yeah. So the first time I heard about sargassum was in my marine botany class that I took in undergrad. Um, I think before that, I'd like heard it in an Andrew Bird song and just thought of it as this like beautiful song lyric. Um, but similarly to Emily, now I have this association with sargassum as this like 
kind of problem child in California and off the coast. Um, but I have to say, like many algae, I hear the name and it just evokes like beautiful floating kelp imagery in my head. So also a lot of positive associations. Yeah, I, I feel very similar about sargassum myself. Um, Lindsay, how do you feel about sargassum or what is it to you? That's funny. Yeah, when I heard that question, I laughed because there was a period of time in my life when I was counting sargassum in my dreams. I spent so much time underwater. I think I counted it up 800 hours underwater for my PhD, all in sargassum. <laughs> so I just lived and breathed it for the longest time, and it, it felt... Um, it became very familiar. Um, but yeah, I, I think like the other panelists, it to me kind of signals environmental change and human impact on the environment. Um, and it, it's sort of a pretty visible example of how we've done that in the marine environment and just sort of evokes a responsibility to help manage that impact more generally. Mm -hmm. What about you, Lauren? But I think for me, it's really been an opportunity to work in a system that I that I really love. Um, although, as Lindsay said, it kind of altered and, and as everyone else has mentioned, in, it's invasive. Um, but I always, for me, really want my work to have kind of a conservation um, application or ties. Um, and so I think invasive species are a good place for that because they are expanding um, as the world is changing. And so it's been kind of an opportunity to move into that world. So Melissa, you're the last one. What does sargassum mean to you? For me, sargassum, well, I agree with so much of what the other panelists have said uh, in terms of it representing this like problem. Um, but I think it's also a really incredible opportunity for humans to reimagine their relationship to the natural world and also to really radically reimagine what it means to steward natural places and you know move past some outdated notions of conservation and stewardship and, and what that looks like uh, because as we can see, you know, we have marine protected areas that are completely overtaken by sargassum and the law says we can't touch it. And so I, I think it's this really unique opportunity to recognize the fact that our actions have caused this change and, and many other changes in the world and it demands our interaction with it. Uh, that we can't just say, oh, hands off and nature will fix it. We're past that point. Uh, so for me, it, it's a great opportunity for us to really reimagine what it means to steward wild places. Question for you, Emily. Why is this Hornerize so successful? Yeah, so this was kind of the main focus of my, or at least like part of my dissertation. Uh, and I was investigating kind of mechanisms of invasion that contributed to sargassum success in Southern California specifically. And it seems like there's a bunch of different factors that are at play that are kind of facilitating its success. Um, and some of those are the lack of native competitors. So the, like native algae, uh, particularly like uh, giant kelp or uh, other species of um, kind of lower line native algae 
uh, lack of consumer pressure, um, favorable environmental conditions, uh, as well as kind of uh, characteristics that are kind of inherent to Sargassum horneri, like uh, a rapid growth rate and uh, the ability to produce a lot of, I guess, Sargassum babies. Um, and th- so all of these seem to be contributing to its success. So I think it, and they all seem to be kind of interplaying with one another and it um, may not be uh, one in particular. The native algae, including the giant kelp, um, cannot really compete with um, horneri. And we know that giant kelp is already struggling in some parts of California. So what, what is the effect on the kelp and on other algae um, from this invasion? Yeah, so there's kind of, it seems like sargassum kind of started to rapidly expand in the region um, following an El Nino or like a marine heat wave uh, from 2014 to 2016. And while, during that heat wave, the usually... Um, well, El, El Ninos and heat waves like have conditions that are not very favorable for giant kelp, which is like warmer than average water conditions and lower than average nutrient levels. And giant kelp declined and throughout some of the much of the region, and it's kind of considered to be a competitive dominant. And so once it kind of declined, uh, it seemed like sargassum uh, expanded in the range, and so. Um, now that it's sargassum's here, it's like what happens to a giant kelp that's trying to recover. And so part of um, my research was conducting some field experiments, but also um, kind of running some model scenarios um, to see like what happens if giant kelp is trying to recover and um, what does sargassum horneri have to do with that. And um, from my research, I found that sargassum horneri does have the potential to limit the colonization of giant kelp um, if it's trying to recover, um, particularly if giant kelp uh, colonization is already limited by these unfavorable uh, environmental conditions. Um, but also on a more positive note, um, I have also some kind of model scenarios that show that kelp can uh, recover if it coincides with some favorable environmental conditions and when uh, competition with sargassum horneri is low. Um, and then others may have a better sense for how it may be impacting other native algal species, but uh, I, the main focus of my research was uh, on giant kelp and Since I live in central California and the Channel Islands are in southern California, everyone always talks about this problem being um, a big deal with the Channel Islands. So what is the big deal with the Channel Islands? Well. Yeah, again, others may have a better sense for this, but um, it seems like once it arrived in Southern California, um, it's maybe moved throughout the region, um, like throughout the Channel Islands via like party boats, shipping boats, uh, diving boats, etc. And because the Channel Islands are such a de- desirable place to do those activities, um, they maybe saw like a greater potential for sargassum horneri colonization. And that's why prevalent but again others may have a better idea of um like why why the channel islands are so uh um i guess prevalent or popular of a place for sargassum so emily it is it right that not that the um sargassum horneri is not in the entire coast of california yet and if so is it moving and does it is it spreading and 
can we know when it will arrive in places or have people done modeling on that? Well, I think predicting when it will arrive uh, is maybe kind of difficult just because it, it depends on how much of it is like in the transport chain and if like whether it survives that transport um, as well as whether it survives once it's here. Um, but if it does survive all of that, uh, I think there's some idea of where it may spread. Um, and it, it seems to be limited by kind of cold water. So, so north of Point Conception, which is um, kind of around the Santa Barbara area, um, it kind of gets like colder north of that. Um, and it, there was like some sense that it would, it would be hard for it to spread beyond that, but there's actually been some found now in Monterey Bay. Um, and, but as far as like within like the Southern California Bight, um, it seems like areas that have low um, competition with native species, uh, low consumer pressure, um, and like also have, yeah, these favorable environmental conditions may be more vulnerable to future spread of sargassum. Um, and then in regards to modeling, um, I, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not sure of anybody that's done this, but I have some like species distribution models might be cool, um, that combine like sargassum occurrence, or sargassum occurrences with, um, like these kind of environmental parameters and ecological parameters to try and predict like where it, um, like the greatest probability of where it may occur and maybe like, uh, predict where it may spread to. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure of anybody that's done that, but maybe others have a better sense for that. Mm -hmm. So um, you said it, it came when it was really warm water and low nutrients. Um, is it that, that um, sargass and hornery really likes summer waters or um, is there no seasonal changes now? Um, like, does it change well, with the season? Yeah, I How guess uh, Lindsay's now? probably like the life history guru. Um, but so sargassum um, exhibits a seasonal or a annual mm -hmm. life history. Um, so it exhibits like a dieback period um, during a certain point every year. Uh, in, in general, these small, small individuals are prevalent during the summertime. Um, and that's when the population usually has its like highest density, but lowest biomass during the summer. Um, and then those smaller individuals transition into larger individuals in the fall and the winter time. And then during the winter time, it's when the population reaches its lowest density, but its highest biomass because of the large, um, yeah, large sizes and, um, kind of there's a lot of reproductive material during that time too. Um, and so then reproduction generally occurs in the spring and then is followed by a dieback period uh, and then is followed by the appearance of uh, small, these smaller individuals in the summertime. Um, but there's also evidence that this like life history is not so like clean cut in these different phases and other parts of its invaded range. Um, so yeah, it is, it is seasonal. Uh, wow. That, that's really interesting, especially the fact that when the density is high, the biomass is low and the other way around. That's kind of counterintuitive, but very interesting. 
sometimes people will say, hey, the sargassum's gone. Like, problem solved. <laughs> but they were just diving in the summer. <laughs> and they just didn't see it. And it's back next year. Emily, how are you incorporating communication into your science? Or how do you plan? To yeah, I, so uh, during grad school, uh, I spent I mean, most of my summers out on Catalina um, and kind of did some public seminars uh, out there as well as in Los Angeles. Um, I've written some blog posts about this research, uh, presented at conferences and um, have some publications regarding um, this research. But surprisingly, in my current position, I'm learning a lot more about incorporating. I'm not a huge like social media person, but I'm in, like learning how to incorporate social media into as a science communication platform. And so, um, and it's surprisingly like a lot of fun and I'd like to uh, continue that moving forward. So kind of grow, it's a little late in the game, but I'm kind of growing these skills to utilize in the future, so. We will scooch down to Sarah. Tell us about Blue Ocean Barns and all these burping cows, Sarah. <laughs> yes, so a little bit different from sargassum, but um, I am like really fascinated by this other species of algae called asparagopsis. You can just think of like asparagus. Um, and it's kind of wild, but if you feed it to cows or other ruminants, so basically animals that, um, digest in the specific way that includes like fermentation. If you actually feed this algae to these types of animals, it limits how much methane they produce. And so there's this company called Blue Ocean Barns and they are basically trying to do this and like make this happen on a large scale. Um, so that's sort of like the synopsis, but um, there's a lot that like goes into that because I think how the research kind of started was that people in other places would often feed their cattle. They'd have like cattle on the sides of cliffs and like near the ocean. And so the cattle would be naturally like eating seaweed. And the people would notice like these other health benefits from eating the seaweed because seaweed also has all these vitamins and other nutrients and the cows seem to be doing better. Um, and so like later, 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 all these studies were done and they actually found that in addition to like being kind of like a nutritional supplement for the cows, um, that they also seem to have way less methane in their burps. Um, and so one of the misconceptions is that cows are farting all this methane, but it's actually that they're burping all this methane. Um, and so with this seaweed, there is this compound inside the seaweed and it just kind of inhibits that methane from being produced at all in their guts. Um, and so when I read about this and heard about this, it's like, oh, this is so cool. Like yet another way that algae is like coming to the rescue. Um, and one place that I kind of saw a missing link was how are we actually going to get this algae? So like, you know, understand the life history of this algae and then try to cultivate it. And people are already doing that. But then how do you actually like get it from a lab in Hawaii to like a farmer you know, out in middle America, like we can't just assume people are going to do this. Um, and so what I'm actually working on in grad school right now is kind of looking at policy and how do we actually incorporate this algae into um, into cattle feed 
and actually make this like a policy. So either going through like incentives or regulatory bodies, um, but sort of how do we make that happen? Um, so that's that's my work with Blue Ocean Barns. That's so cool. And you're also part of a other really cool project um, that I really, really love, which is called Ocean Visions. You're a fellow there and you have worked on their interactive roadmaps to make ocean-based carbon dioxide, dioxide removal, CDR. Um, what are some of the ways we can use macroalgae to draw down carbon dioxide? Yeah, so this is another really exciting frontier that has a little ways to go, but I think has a lot of promise. Um, and so there are a number of ways that people have proposed to basically take CO2 out of the atmosphere or out of the oceans using algae. Um, but the one that I think actually has the most promise and is kind of the most exciting to me is this idea of actually planting. So like big, big algae, like um, giant kelp. So sort of like the poster child of, of seaweed, that big slimy stuff. Um, so growing like huge swaths of that, like farming it in the ocean and then actually sinking it to the bottom of the ocean. Um, because one of the big challenges is that even though so kelp takes the CO2 up when it grows, um, as soon as that kelp like drifts off from the rest of the organism or washes up onto the beach, or if someone picks it and eats it, that CO2 is then recycling back into the carbon cycle. It's actually not getting like trapped. It's not coming out of the atmosphere. It's just being recycled. And so the problem with when you're talking about CDR and kelp is we have to not only grow the kelp and absorb that CO2, but we also have to sequester it and actually like store it for like hundreds or thousands of years for this to actually be an effective tool to combat climate change. Um, and so what um, some companies are looking at is, is taking this kelp and actually through some very cool like engineering with self decomposing buoys and stuff, having the weight of the kelp actually sink itself to the bottom of the ocean where it will stay for hopefully hundreds to thousands of years. And so there's a lot of work that has to be done in that, you know, the ocean is like, maybe the hardest space to work in, I think. Like there are so many factors that you can't control and it's like salt water is like the worst thing for engineering and there's just so many tricky components to it. Um, but I think like there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm around it. And my work with Ocean Visions is this um, sort of like a catalyst for ocean solutions. And there's a lot of like passion and enthusiasm and money, which is important for these things. Um, and so I think that like with the right minds and like, you know, the passion and also the pressure of like, we need to, we need solutions like yesterday. Um, I, I think that there's like a lot of, a lot of really cool potential for this. Yes. Um, we actually did an episode with Victor Smitacek, one of our first podcast episodes. And he talks about his vision of having these really big sargassum farms in tropical gyres that will draw down gigatons of carbon, similar to what you said with the kelp. Um, but so you talked about how we can have less cow burps and how we can actually draw down carbon, but can macroalgae also be used for products that lower CO2 emissions, that lower the emissions we actually put out into the atmosphere as humans? Yeah, so I think the ideas around 
this topic are there. I don't know if anything's come to fruition in like a very meaningful way, um, but about like 10 years ago, this idea of seaweed or algae as biofuel was like very much like the darling of like alternative energy. And I think because of where things were technologically and also from like a funding point of view, it just never really got off the ground. Um, but I, you know, the interest was there for using seaweed as a biofuel. And I think there's still potential um, in the future. There's also like uh, seaweed and different algae as um, bioplastic, which I think is a really cool use. I think, again, like the scalability, I think, is a big hurdle for a lot of these projects is you have like kind of boutique, like small companies that can make, you know, straws out of algae and stuff like that. But it's like three dollars a straw or something like it's never going to be mainstream at that cost. And so I think with a lot of these technologies, like the ideas are there. Um, the proof of concept might even be there, but it's just a matter of the technology being at a readiness level for, for scalability. We talked just a few days ago with a group that um, put out a paper um, with a economical analysis, techno-economical techno analysis on making biofuel out of sargassum. And they also said that making biofuel out of algae Growing the algae was the really expensive part, which made it not possible to compete with fossil fuels. But by using the sargassum that's already proliferating, they think they could actually make a profit. So now they just need money for a pilot and hopefully they get some money and, and we'll have that working soon. That's exciting. We also recently did a podcast with Dr. Legina Henry out of um, the University of West Indies in Cape Hill in Barbados, and they are working on getting a car moving by the end of this year with sargassum biofuel as well. They're using uh, wastewater from rum distilleries also, but um, it is definitely something that is in the works, which is really exciting. So what can we do with all this algae, Sarah? <laughs> what can't you do? <laughs> I think there are so many cool applications for algae. I, I think like, I think many people think of algae as being like one thing, like it's that one big slimy seaweed that washes up onto the beach, but there are so many species with really different forms and um, different you know, textures and feels and different components that make them up. And I think there are a lot of really cool uses. And I think maybe more importantly is a sort of this idea that we can incorporate more natural products to solve the problems that we've been trying to solve, I think, too. And I think it's also really important to remember that like algae has been incorporated in human use for like thousands of years and that like the western world is kind of just coming up to speed with that um but i think like the potential like we're just sort of scratching the surface awesome okay so what is the plural for algae really alga algae algae how is it really pronounced <laughs> yeah so the plural is algae and then the singular is alga and I always mess it up and I will always mess it up for the rest of my life, I think. <laughs> I do Listeners, too. you're not alone. <laughs> yes. Um, in the beginning... I like will say algaes sometimes. <laughs> um, in, in the beginning, you said you were also working on creating policies around um, the blue ocean barns and those algae used to 
feed cows. So how, how, how does one create policies in California? Like how, how does that work? Yeah, so I am like not, a, I'm like a baby, baby, baby in the policy realm. I'm like very much learning about it. But I think um, one of the most interesting challenges when you're talking about policy is I think just identifying what you want to change and who you're targeting to make that change. So I think it's like very common, um, like for instance, with sargassum, like you can't actually ask the sargassum to move or like with cows, like it's not a matter of asking them to like, please stop burping so much. It's actually like the humans, like we're the ones that need to make changes. Um, and so even though that sounds so silly, I think it can get really easy to lose track of who's responsible for making the change. Like, how do we go about that? Because at the end of the day, like behavioral change in humans is a really, really hard thing to do. And is like a science in and of itself. Um, and so I think, being very like clear and like clever with like how you're going about solving this problem is really important. Um, and so like with the, with the cows and the algae, for instance, I think one of the biggest sort of forks in the road that I've been like circling around for a long time is like carrot or stick. Like when you're talking about policy, like are you asking people to please make a change and giving them a reward for doing it? Or are you telling people this is the change you need to make? And if you don't make it, there are consequences. And there are like very much like split schools of thought on how to go about that. Um, but I think before you can, you know, write any like white papers or go to any Congress people, like you really need to be very clear about how these changes are going to happen and, and that they're going to be long lasting too, and that adoption rates will continue. Okay, tell us about your intertidal work in Alaska. Was the water freezing? Yeah, so right out of undergrad, I did a lot of work in the intertidal zone. So like where the ocean meets the land and it's all rocky and tide pooly. And it was pretty wild in Alaska, it was super fun. But um, I went up in January to set up the experiment and our tide pools were like literally frozen over which was like a bizarre thing to see. There were like rocks, like iced together on the beach. Um, we got like hailed on and snowed on. I went out once and it was like about ready to be a storm and all of our hair was like just sticking straight up. And we were like, oh shoot, I don't think this is a good sign. Like, I don't think we should be outside with instruments right now. Um, <laughs> and so it's kind of, it was all over the place, but it was also just incredible. Like it was, I, it was a wonderful experience. I love doing field work. I think doing field work is like one of the best jobs in the world, even though it's seen as the like lowest level, like intern who doesn't get paid, does all the field work stuff. I think it's like also one of the most rewarding jobs and I had a blast doing it. Awesome, I could not agree with you more. I miss field work. I'm happy that everyone's getting back out into the field now, finally. Hopefully everyone here is getting back out into the field. Yeah. as well. Um, one last question about your time in Alaska. Tell us how you enjoyed smoking your own salmon while you were there. <laughs> yes, it was fantastic. I went to Alaska a vegan and came back with like 20 pounds of smoked salmon that I had smoked <laughs> myself. <laughs> um, it was wonderful. It really like kicked me off my vegan soapbox and showed me that like eating in an environmental and sustainable way means like completely different things depending on where you are in the world. 
Um, and it was really fun to go out and like try and catch my own fish and then like build a smoker and like sit in front of a fire for 10 hours with just like tears running down my eyes because of the smoke and like putting one toothpick of wood after another. Um, but it was fun. It was very much like, um, I felt way more like connected to what I was eating and to the environment and just kind of felt like I was part of it instead of just like an outsider, you know, eating a PB&J in a cabin. <laughs> so it was fantastic. Thank you so much, Sarah. So we will pivot over to Lindsay. And my first question for you, Lindsay, is how did you get into working with algae? Actually, I think the first time I started working with algae was when I was interning and then working for a master's student at UC Santa Cruz who was studying algae for her work. But yeah, I worked for um, a woman who was getting her master's looking at the invertebrates that live in um, different species of red algae um, with really different morphologies. And she was curious what kind of um, invertebrates or, you know, sea bugs live in these different kind of species of algae. Um, so we spent a lot of time working with beautiful red algae. She taught me how to press algae, which I still do to this day for fun. Um, and I think I really fell in love with it because of her passion. So thanks, Katie. Um, but since then, when I started my PhD, um, I had just started hearing about this um, non-native sargassum that was spreading throughout California and hadn't really heard of anyone really, really studying it yet. So, um, you know, as Lauren said, I, I think it was Lauren that um, I really like to do work that feels like it has um, real-world conservation implications, and so it seemed like a really great project to spend seven years on, which I did. Um, and uh, I think that's that's how I spent um, so much time studying sargassum. <laughs> it's definitely good to pick something that you really love when you know you're going to be spending that much time with it, so... I'm yes. Happy to hear that. Um, so, how long has this invasive sargassum been here, and does anyone know where it came from, or how did this happen? Yeah, you know, we can't really know for sure how it got here. Um, we do know that this this species that's here is a really specific type of sargassum horneri called sargassum philocynum that has a pretty limited range in Japan. Um, and interestingly, this is, as far as I know, the only place in the world where it's it's spread to outside of its native range. Um, it was most likely introduced by commercial shipping, be that either growing on the physical ship itself or possibly used sometimes as packing material um, when shipping live seafood, um, growing on um, shellfish. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we can't know exactly. Um, but given that it first appeared in Long Beach Harbor and, and has since shown up in other harbors and common anchorages out at the Channel Islands, it certainly is most likely um, being spread regionally by, by boat traffic as well, in addition to just natural dispersal and the other mechanisms that Emily mentioned earlier. Tell us about your work as an underwater landscaper, and I love this title. Was it self-appointed? I think it was. I was getting some science communication training when I came up with that. <laughs> um, 
yeah, so that was that was born out of um, a pretty major experiment that I did in collaboration with a master student, Sam Ginther, out at Catalina Island, where we were kind of teaming up. He was looking at fish, I was looking at algae and invertebrates, and we ended up clearing uh, about four tons of sargassum from a couple of sites out there. I think um, we were clearing 60 meters squared kind of circular areas. Um, with the purpose of kind of looking at, you know, does what we considered a relatively large-scale removal um, have an impact on the next generation of this species, right? Because it is an annual, has an annual life cycle, and so if you remove it, that's one thing, but what you really care about is how does that affect the future um, cohorts or the next year's population. Um, and we were also interested in how the native algae was able to recolonize into those cleared spaces. Um, unfortunately, uh, we didn't see a lot of recovery of native algae. We did do this study during the marine heat wave that has been mentioned before, and so there really weren't any kelp plants in sight <laughs> to recolonize those spaces. Um, and so, uh, and we also saw a limited um, effect of the removal on subsequent populations um, relative to control areas where we didn't do any clearing but did monitor for the following year. Um, at the end of the day, though, actually, um, the populations in both cleared and uncleared areas increased very disappointingly. Um, and, you know, it was just sort of a result of the environmental conditions being really conducive, warm water, um, the sargassum just was doing really, really well during that period of time. And without the native algae to come back in and, and reclaim that space, um, we saw a disappointing effect of the removal. <laughs> you know, in my experience, um, it does really well in the warmer, warmer periods. And so if we do get um, some cooler, more nutrient waters coming in that benefit the native algae, uh, I would expect to see some some decline of the sargassum. I, I think, like Emily was saying, it it seems to be a very opportunistic species. It's just able to sort of take advantage of gaps in spaces and times when native algae competitors are not doing as well. And so I think it has the potential to really shift year to year, um, depending on those factors. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we've we seen that at least up in Canada, where they had the heat wave on land there also has been a real big heat wave on the shore in the water there and killing lots of animals and lots of uh, marine animals so with having these warming seas and warmer temperatures will we have a really hard time keeping hornery in check in the future will it become harder and harder for us to do so Yeah, you know, it, it's really difficult once invasive species become established to have a really major impact um, once they reach sort of a critical threshold. Um, and so I think that sargassum is so widespread in the region now, sargassum hornray, that um, there's really not a whole lot we can do about it regionally. Um, but I think that the, you know, the sort of most bang for a buck that we can invest in is rapid responses to new infestations. Like um, Emily mentioned that new sighting in Monterey last year that was a, really a big leap from, from the range um, 
limits, the northern range limits previously, and um, there was a, a quick response to remove those specimens, and I think that that's, that's where um, it's worthwhile to try to invest in helping to limit or slow its spread. Do you have any in place where citizens can report hornery? Like, do you have some citizen science projects that help you with this? Yeah, um, I worked with California Sea Grant and UC Santa Cruz back when I was a PhD student to create a, a website called marineinvasives.org where citizen scientists can report their sightings. Um, and it's something that it's also just meant to be sort of a information hub where people can learn about the species. Um, so that's one avenue. I think that maybe since since I did that, some other um, avenues have popped up as well. But that's the one I would recommend. And, and there are resources on that website as well, training guides and um, um, just some background information to help folks know what they're looking for and why it matters. Yeah, that website is amazing. I frequent that website often. So thank you. <laughs> That's good for to hear. <laughs> there. Um, does anyone eat this stuff? Or any urchins or any abalones? It's it's not something that everyone just wants to go mow down for us out there. You know, yeah, it sargassum and fucoids in general, I think, tend to have um, chemical defenses that deter grazing. It's part of their successful life history um, and so yeah I found in a study I did um, that uh, sargassum the native and the non-native species were grazed less heavily than the native kelps um, my guess is for that reason they also just structurally are a little bit more difficult to approach it's a really beautiful delicate seaweed with lots of light branching and so it really just can't support snails and heavy things the way that um, more robust kelps can too um, so in general i think that you know moderate to low densities of grazers if anything will you know pave the way for sargassum by munching on other species that are tastier and creating more space for it but that said i have seen urchin barrens where if they get hungry enough they clearly will eat the sargassum as well um, probably like most of us will will eat <laughs> anything at some point even if we don't prefer it um, yeah and i have i don't i'm not very familiar with abalone diets but i have heard that abalone will eat it as well i'm not sure about how much they like it I did a little bit of research into um, the California, the invasive sargassum that's here, and um, it's known as Akamoku in Japan, and it is a, not something that they have eaten, you know, for centuries, it's like relatively newish that people are harvesting it and using it as food. Uh, but it's prized as like a superfood. And um, you know those little like baby food apple juice squeeze packets? They put it in that. Um, and they'll, they'll like blanch it and then put it in this packet. Um, and Or they'll like cook it and serve it with like rice and a, an egg or something. Um, but it's highly viscous like super, super viscous, which is a really nice way of saying slime. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're a little bit skeptical if Western diets will <laughs> be 
um, into that, but that viscousness, that quality, those algal gels um, are excellent in skincare products uh, and have a lot of great qualities, you know, as like a supplement or something. Uh, so we do think that there is potential for uh, the Sargassum horneri that's here to be a food product, but possibly more potential for it to, to be a skincare product yeah. or something like that. I, I do have cool. soap of the pelagic Sargassum and it does, it's really good for your skin for sure. I, I feel the difference to normal soap and I think it's superior. But maybe just because I like sargassum in general and products made out of it. <laughs> cool. um, Melissa, so you work for Kelpful and Kelpful donates some of its profits to sea trees. Can you tell us a bit about sea trees? Yeah, sea trees is a wonderful organization. Um, so basically what they do is you can, um, you know, restore a certain, you know, area or square footage of California kelp uh, forests by donating uh, money to them. And what they do with that money, they, they work directly with the Bay Foundation and they have some sites in Southern California where they pay urchin divers, a lot of times out of work urchin divers, to go and um, remove purple urchins. And um, many of you are familiar with the urchin barren situation where purple urchins are mowing down kelp forests due to a combination of factors, uh, climate change and lack of predators such as the sea otter um, and the sea stars um, and it, they have been able to show they've got some great data on their website where they publish um, all the data from these sites and they are able to show that removing the purple urchins does allow the giant kelp a chance to then reestablish itself in these sites so even though they're not going in and replanting the kelp uh, it's able to come back with the purple urchins being gone and so we um, you know, we started our company because we wanted to farm seaweed and in California is there's just not a very friendly environment for that right now. We're working really hard on that, but not able to do that right now. And so um, donating a percentage of our sales to them, we're able to participate in some way in, uh, you know, rest restoration of native kelp forests here. That's very cool. That's really, really cool. Um, so you're, yeah, that is. Um, so you're not able to farm. Where do you get your seaweed for kelpful right now? We wild harvest um, mostly here in San Luis Obispo County in the northern end of the county. We were actually harvesting nori just this morning. Um, and it was a really gorgeous morning. Um, so yeah, we, we harvest quite a few different species and we harvest um, very carefully and very small amounts relative to the biomass that is here. Um, but even with those small amounts, you know, we're able to um, make some really yummy food for folks. Wow. Um, Melissa, how did you get into this field? How did you decide to to make food out of kelp and other algae? 
So to be honest, I it was one podcast. <laughs> I heard an interview with Bren Smith, as so many people have, um, on Bioneers Radio in 2017. At the time, I was working for a solar nonprofit doing community outreach. Um, and I heard this podcast about kelp farming, and I was just like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's This is, this is what I have to do. Um, and so, you know, fast forward, I found some other um, ladies in this area who wanted to do the same thing. And um, so we've been working on that for years now and are still working really hard and getting a lot closer, thankfully, to having an established uh, regenerative ocean farm here in the Central Coast. Um, but meanwhile, we we still wanted to play with seaweed and so we started wild harvesting and educating both ourselves and our all our friends and community whether they wanted to or not <laughs> on all the different varieties of seaweed here you know what the native species are how do they grow what can we make with them how do we dry it you know just learning everything that we could as well as testing and building the local market you know like what do people want to eat what will people actually buy um, and and what will work uh, in the consumer marketplace basically and uh, so yeah that's how that's how I got started and um, yeah we're, we're getting closer to getting that farm established which is really exciting cool all because of a podcast so magical yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us what is so great about eating all this seaweed anyway? There's so many great things about eating seaweed, as I'm sure you're all aware. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing is probably the nutrient density. You know, seaweed is much more nutrient dense than, than land-based plants, especially in trace minerals. And so a lot of folks eat seaweed for the iodine. Um, most people are iodine deficient. It's hard to find in a traditional American diet, um, for sure. And so a lot of people take it, take you know, kelp supplements as a way to boost their iodine. Um, it's also a prebiotic, and so feeds you know healthy gut bacteria. The algal gels. Um, line the inner linings of your intestines and, and make a friendly environment for the good gut bacteria to live so it's great for your um, your gut in that way which uh, is wonderful for everything from your immune system to your metabolism even mental health you know we now know that serotonin production happens in our stomach which is so wild um, it's also a lot of species have really unique uh, and well-documented anti-tumor properties and antiviral properties and properties that cause our body to process sugars and carbohydrates in a different way and so there's some evidence that suggests it'd be great for folks who are struggling with diabetes and, and obesity. And the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, there's so many studies out there about, you know, the nutritional and medicinal benefits uh, of seaweed. Um, and, 
you know, we look at like the, I think they're called like blue zones where the most people live to over a hundred. And many of them are places where people eat seaweed on a regular basis. Cool. Hopefully everybody's going to run out and buy it. And it's delicious. <laughs> what is the best hot sauce though for seaweed? Our listeners want to know. To put on seaweed? Um, I like to put our spicy furikake on my seaweed. I put seaweed on seaweed. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, we have a spicy sea sprinkles mix that's um, toasted nori and kelp and roasted sesame seeds and some chili flakes. And I really like that on like the seaweed salad. That sounds amazing. Also, you guys use compostable packaging. That's awesome. Can you tell us more about this compostable packaging? Yeah, we do. That um, that was a really interesting journey. You know, something that we were not going to compromise on from the very beginning is all of our packaging is going to be home compostable or reusable, period. Um, and we actually had to delay the launch of our retail ready um, products for like seven or eight months because there's only one company that makes packaging that we find acceptable <laughs> and there was something going on with their factory and you know COVID supply chain stuff was just like really wacky. Um, but we get it from a company called Elevate and they're based in the U.S. Their factory runs on wind power, which is incredible. So it's made with 100% renewable energy in the United States, and it's made with waste product from the sugarcane industry. So it's made with a waste product using renewable energy. It's home compostable. They're the only company that we could find that made labels that were fully compostable, including the adhesive. Uh, which most, you know, you can find other compostable labels, but the glue that's on it isn't compostable. Um, and, you know, the best packaging is no packaging. It's a constant struggle that, that we deal with where, you know, we, we want to exist and we want to get seaweed to other people. Um, there's no perfect solution, but, but we feel like we've at least found an acceptable one for now. Well, it, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like it. It sounds beyond acceptable. And actually, I listened to another podcast yesterday while sorting my sargassum samples about circular economy. And the the, per, the guest on the podcast said the best packaging that you can send to people is something that is useful to them. Like as you said, like your product can be composted in their garden and make compost for them. So I think your packaging fits that category and it's made out of waste. So it's not having much negative effects on, on the upstream either on the beginning of its life cycle. I was just going to say the best packaging would be made out of sargassum also compostable. It's sargassum based bioplastic. We're yes. Really holding out for that. There's people working on it. <laughs> Yeah, we're getting to our last guest today, um, Lauren, who is working on her PhD 
And I want to know how did you get down the path of um, working with this invasive algae? Uh, so like a lot of people here, I have ties to UC Santa Cruz. Um, that's where I went for my undergrad. And while I was there, I worked for the Coastal Conservation Action Lab. And they were partnering with Island Conservation and IUCN and BirdLife International um, to create a database of island breeding vertebrates, so birds, mammals, amphibians, and reptiles that were endangered and critically endangered. And they were using that global list to prioritize invasive species removals on islands. And so I kind of got a crash course into invasive species and the damage they were doing, especially in island communities um, with the wildlife there. And I really, really liked the job a lot. Um, it felt like, uh, I think Lindsay's talked about it and I've talked about it. It felt like I was making a difference, like it was really actionable. Um, when I graduated, I moved back to Southern California and I started uh, doing kind of a lot of jobs, but one of them was a tide pool educator. And I was starting to kind of think about what kinds of questions I might want to ask uh, in, a, in a PhD. And as a tide pool educator, I got to spend a lot of time in the tide pools. And I started noticing the species that I had never seen before growing up um, and started kind of Googling about it and figuring out that it, it was in fact Sargassum honorai. Um, and that's kind of how I got started on this path. So what is the range of um, Sargassum honorai? Where can we find it? Yeah, so I think um, Emily did a pretty good job of, um, and, and Lindsay about talking about how we've seen it north of Point Conception, but I think mostly like established populations are south of Point Conception all the way to Isla Natividad, Mexico. Um, and then like especially prevalent on the Channel Islands where I, I know I've seen them in like monocultures where there's not a lot of other algae uh, present. Cool, so that's where my next sargassum vacation is going to. <laughs> you go to Catalina and you'll see a lot of Oh, it. that's a cool place I always wanted to visit anyways, so I'll go. <laughs> you have a good excuse now. It's really lovely. Okay, Lauren, so tell us what the heck is beach rack anyway? So beach rack is when any algae washes up on shore. And it's really important because if you picture like a sandy beach in your mind, mostly you're kind of going to think of like a flat, expansive sand area. There's not a lot of relief to it. Um, it's kind of, it can be pretty homogenous. But when algae washes ashore, it creates both um, like trophic or food support and habitat support. And so you have this algae that washes up on shore and you have like bugs and stuff that start to colonize it and maybe are eating the algae as it's breaking down. And then birds are eating those bugs and they are going back into terrestrial uh, communities to poop. And so it's bringing this marine uh, nutrients all the way into terrestrial communities. And so even though it can be smelly and maybe not look the best always, it is actually a really important resource. I feel like for most of us in California, we expect to see that on the beach. So it's not that uncommon. How stinky is it really? Um, I haven't noticed it being stinkier than any other algae. Um, 
it, not stinky in the beginning and then, you know, stinkier and stinkier over time as with all decaying things. Mm-hmm. And does it make the water, the, the surrounding water brown? Um, I haven't noticed that in California. I have noticed, like, as I was collecting it, like the rack, um, and preserving it, that the sargassum water was a lot dingier than the kelp water was. And I think some of that is just like the structural nature of it. Sargassum is a lot wirier. Um, and I think smaller, and Lindsay kind of talked about more delicate. And so I think it's breaking down maybe a little bit more. And so it was kind of turning that water brown. Um, I haven't noticed that out in the ocean, however. But yeah, you're lucky. The water here is brown very brown at times um so how much are we talking about like how much is washed up on shore is it knee high is it hip high is it just up to your feet no (laughs) um what i've noticed in california is the way that it kind of you can get places where it'll wash up and it'll build up especially after a big storm and it might be like ankle or maybe calf high. Mostly what I've noticed is like, you'll get like like a big pile of it, maybe in one or two or three, four spots on the beach. Um, it's not everywhere, not like uh, other places where sargassum. I've, I've seen like is it the golden tides where like the whole beach is covered. It's, it's not like that. Um, it's just where it's growing, it's gonna wash on shore. Um, and it's a, a kind of more like piles than it is everything on the sand yeah that's cool and much better than what we have here where it's just the whole beach and knee high or hip high at times and brown water and all that fun stuff that comes with the golden tides which are also the brown tides um how does sargassum hornery compare in its diversity to the native giant kelp species yeah, so what's what I'm one of the questions I'm asking with my dissertation is how when once it's washed up on shore, um, who's colonizing? Is the diversity different between those two species? Because I think Emily talked about this. Kelp is really important, and and the the majority spaceholder for the kelps in Southern California and sargassum is kind of showing up in places that have historically been kelp forests. So I wanted to know once it gets to the terrestrial community. How is that different? Um, there's already folks that are kind of looking at things that are changing in, in the marine uh, world, but what's happening once it washes on shore? And I was really expecting that kelp was going to have like a lot more bugs. It's native. I was I was kind of assuming that everything would be used to it. They'd know what to do, and and that's really what we would see. Um, that's not what I experienced. I'm not done processing all my data yet. I have a lot of pictures of bugs I need to identify. Um, but I will tell you that just like visually, the sargassum had a lot more in the very beginning. Um, and now that I'm starting to count and get my data back, that that is true. Um, and so I think that I was wrong. <laughs> um, and, and so sargassum it is maybe providing um, a, a good habitat on the beach um, for um, amphipods and flies and things. Um, and I was seeing like a lot of, I'm like looking at some of my data right in the beginning. Um, Sargassum had like on average 
I think it was like 102 bucks compared to this kelp, which had like 15. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, for like the same amount of racks. That's a big difference. Uh, that, had walked, that I had put out on the beach. So I think that. That's a that big again. difference. Yeah. I think the kelp, it maybe takes a little bit longer. I, But I'm still, like I said, still processing through all that. Um, Lauren, can you tell us about your very technical sargassum drying technique that I've seen amazing photos of, please? Um, yeah, I, so for my, what I'm doing, I'm not doing a lot of, um, like, herbarium presses, which is really beautiful. Um, but instead, like, just wanting to know what the weight is of the sargassum and the kelp, like, at the end when I collected it. Um, and so first I rinse it with um, filtered seawater um, just to get anything that was in it out that's not part of the rack itself. Uh, and then I rinse it with fresh water because you don't want to dry the salt on it because that has a weight. Um, and then I put it in a drying oven at 60 degrees Celsius and you just keep going back and weighing it until it weighs the same thing over multiple hours. And then you know it's done. If you're, if you're actually like pressing stuff, that's a, a much more fun process where you uh, put it in between like wax paper and uh, like newspaper and corrugated cardboard and, and you keep changing, you can keep changing the newspaper out until it's beautiful and, and then put it on an herbarium press. And I have a couple of those, but that's, that's not what I'm currently doing. Yeah. Um, Francisca just got an oven today to dry her samples. So yes, I'm, I'm slowly, I'm right. slowly turning our Airbnb, which we've been living in for over six months um, here in Mexico. Um, into a little algae lab and now I have a freezer and a drying oven. <laughs> On the podcast we have this tradition of asking everyone the same question at the beginning which is we already went through what sargassum means to you all but I'm going to start a new tradition today for my episode and ask you guys kind of a bright spot. So we'll start with Lauren. How can we shed a positive light on the sargassum horneri invasion? Um, I think I want to kind of go back to what Melissa said for the very first question, talking about like how like it can for all of this kind of discussion and and people getting excited about it and trying to come up with solutions and really bringing people together. And, and for me, um, my like personal positive light has been um, I got to work so closely with Emily um, and like meet all these different people. And, and it's just really been uh a really cool experience and I think um, hopefully setting me up with a number of skills that I'll get to use in the future. Thank you. Okay, Melissa, how about you? How can we shed a positive light on this invasion? Yeah, I think the same thing that I said in the beginning where it's an opportunity for us to reimagine our relationship to the natural world instead of being separate from it and you know keeping hands off is the best way to preserve it is clearly not the case anymore you know that that we're a part of this ecosystem we have a role to play um and we need to ask ourselves you know what is that role in, in this situation sarah how can we shed a positive light on the sargassum horneri invasion 
Yeah, I think I'm just probably echoing everyone else, but I think we can, you know, pretty confidently say that this is not the last invasive species that we're going to see, um, especially, you know, with climate change and with species changing their geographical ranges. And so I think if we look at this as like practice to hopefully inform, you know, better action and smarter action in the future, um, I think then, you know, not all will be lost if we can at least get some skills out of this invasion. Absolutely. Emily, how about you? Yeah, I think I have kind of similar things as everybody else, but uh, I think like a perfect example is just this podcast and everybody that's on it, you know, it, even though the invasion is not desirable, it does bring people together to a bunch of common, bunch of minds like working on a common problem and um, I think that that's like a very positive uh, outlook. And I mean, as Lindsay mentioned, you know, the the rapid response to the kind of new little invas invas invasion spot like up in Monterey is also a positive sign. And, um, you know, maybe like using using what we've learned from this invasion to not only manage future spread, but future invasions as well. Absolutely. Okay, Lindsay. Yeah, I would echo kind of several sentiments that were just said. I think I love the energy that's built around this in the last 10 years and that just the, the really creative approaches different folks are bringing to come up with solutions. And it's I think it's a really positive culture of researchers and conservationists. And I've just really enjoyed working with all the folks I've met along the way as well. And yeah, I think um, lots of lessons learned here about what happens when we don't treat these situations um, with due effort and response. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a different invasive algae that was um, found in California around the same time as Sargassum. It's called Calerpa and it showed up um, in Southern California as well. And there was a massive response to try to eradicate it right away because of an example where it had become really invasive in the Mediterranean already. And so there was a lot of awareness um, and action and it was a successful eradication. It's, it's never been found since. And so I think that to the extent that this reminds us that we can and um, have the power to do our best to prevent these these situations from happening in the future, um, it just sort of reinforces the need to to pay attention and and keep on top of new marine invasive species as as they come up. Absolutely, and Lindsay, while I have you here, we offer to our Patreons that they can submit questions before our episodes so they get the guest list and someone named Rick DeSantiago who is a student at UC um, San Diego a PhD candidate said he's your number one fan and he also wanted to know if you think the Horner Eye will eventually naturalize um, here in the environment. Thanks Rick. Um, I don't know how to answer that you know I think time will tell. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else on the panel has a has a guess. I think, you know, 
in the way that Sargassum muticum sort of naturalized down here, that's not the case further north, where it's still considered a pretty dominant invasive species um, up in Oregon and Washington, I think. So I guess time will tell what the, what the environment brings, how the, how the native algae continue to interact with it. Um, I guess it's not a great answer, but I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. I hope so. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate all of your time and your invaluable information and for sharing everything with us today. Yes, thank you everyone. Thanks so much for having thank me. You. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today and learning with us from our guests. If you want more information about what our guests talk about today, then please check our show notes for links and information in our archives. And don't forget to like and share our podcast with your friends. If you enjoyed our podcast, please consider supporting us financially by becoming a Patreon. For as little as $1 per month, you can support us and get the exclusive benefit of submitting questions for our interviewees before the interview. The Sargasm Podcast is produced by Marine Conservation Without Borders and is made possible with financial support from Seafields. It is produced by Marcel Van de Camp, Lauren Blankenship, Cleo Maridakas, Francisca Elmer, and Eloise Lopez, and is hosted by Robbie Thigpan, Francesca Elmer, Mar Fernandez, Florence Menez, Cleo Maridakas, and Paula Diaz. We will be back next week with another exciting guest. The music of this podcast is from the song Demo Prey by Drizzle, the Roadrunner, an artist from Roatan. Follow him on Spotify or YouTube for more music. But for now, here is the full song Demo Prey. Hey, brother. Hear me now. Brother, dog. Know me. Understand. Now for them, no one fits we get nothing. That's why they must be. Always front and star Not for them no one to see we get nothing That's why they my free Not for them my free They my free Me no gain progress Not for them my free They my free Me no great success Not for them my free They my free Me no gain progress Not for them my free they my premium to read success to me tell them yeah Rappers is my man, we no take that Only if it come from Joe, I'll accept that Not for them, I put the trust in and give me setback Yo, select that, we'll and pull up that Tell some wicked that bad mind, we no fear them Anytime them cheat and chat, we no hear them Me dash a few hearts, so body queer them Me dash a few hearts, so tell them where them Not for them, I'm free, They my premium in progress, not for them a free They my free, me to reap success So me tell them yeah Yes, me know me have a lot of fake friends But me never would have taught me would have have fake family So me tell them straight, me no trust them Me no trust you and me no trust him Fake friend must lost bad mind in a real life Star, me no rate that Star, me no rate that Me real for me would have Bust a million shot in a real life Real, real, real Not for them a free my premium no gain progress, not for them a free. They my premium 
keep success. Now for them a free, they a free. Me no gain progress. Now for them a free, they a free. Me no keep success. So me tell you, yeah. Like, but they a hate and grudge and creep on mine They a move like Judas They a move like Judas Plus, everybody have a life to live So when they give one rat's clock Who I try to judge me Let them chit and chat to what them want to say Cause none of them out there Now feed me Now them a free Them a free me no gain progress Now for them a free Them a free me to reap success Enough of them are free, yeah.